though many deny it, though many live oblivious as to this reality that will present itself on one day, though many suppress this innate knowledge that all of humanity has embedded in their heart, everyone at an appointed time of God's choosing will stand before the throne of God to give account for their lives. No one will escape it. Everything is spiraling forward to a predetermined event inscribed in God's calendar from even before the foundations of the world in eternity past, an event culminating in final judgment for all of mankind. This is what we're going to look at today in the 20th chapter of Revelation. In these last two final scenes there, we see these, these events that mark the end and bring all of human history to its intended conclusion. They are the events that accompany Christ's return at the end of the age. So what we'll look at today is this, that Christ's return at the close of the age, it's our main point, will consummate the ultimate defeat of all of God's enemies and usher in the final judgment of all humanity. Let's read from the 20th chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 7 through the end. Hear the words of the living God. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, Written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the words of the Lord. We're going to look at this first uh, sequence of the vision, which is actually a continuation of the first three verses, where John says he saw heaven opened, right? And he begins to see this scene where an angel comes out, and he's holding a key to the bottomless pit, and he sees a chain in his hand. And his role is to capture Satan and imprison him in the bottomless pit where it says that he is sealed shut in there for a thousand years. We began to look at the millennium, this thousand year period and all that it represents. So I shared three glorious truths regarding this millennial period that is symbolic of the entire age between the first coming of Jesus Christ 
and his return, his second coming. This is the church age, the gospel age. And so we looked at these three glorious truths. The first was that this period of time, this thousand years during which uh, we're, we're talking about symbolically here, is that time of the ultimate defeat of Satan, which is expressed, first of all, in a preliminary manner. He's bound with a specific purpose, but it anticipates his full and final defeat. What did we mean by Satan being bound? Did we mean that he can no longer do evil? Did we mean that he can no longer tempt? Did we mean that he can no longer assail and assault a a church or harm Christians? No. We're told specifically what Satan being bound means. It means that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Uh, It means that he cannot, during this millennium, during this gospel age, he cannot deceive the nations by persuading them to mount a unified assault to persecute and destroy the church of Jesus Christ and stop her uh, from fulfilling her missionary enterprise. That's what he cannot do. So we said additionally, this millennium is the period during which the church on earth will not fail in her missionary enterprise. The church during this time where Satan is bound and kept from deceiving the nations by not being able to persuade them to launch an assault on the church to destroy her, the church church will fulfill her mission. Satan cannot thwart the advance of the gospel. The church cannot be stopped from fulfilling the great commission that Jesus Christ entrusted her to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the third truth we said that what this millennium symbolizes is the period of time also in which the church in heaven will experience in an intermediate fashion her ultimate victory of reigning with Christ. What does John see there? He sees the departed saints who are now said to be reigning with Christ They have entered into the glorious reward that Jesus promised all those who would conquer to the end. They're said to be presently reigning with Christ. So the souls of all those who die in the Lord during this period are immediately with the Lord in his presence. Scripture says that they have come to life and they are eternally secure because they will not experience the second death. I want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that, these last two Sundays where we covered this period of the millennium. But this time will come to a close. There's going to come a time where Satan will be allowed to do what he presently cannot do because he's bound. Verse 3 says that after that, after that period in which he's bound, he must be released for a little while, right? After what? After the thousand years are ended, verse 7 says, it says Satan will be released from prison. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is super important. Does Satan escape from prison? Does somehow he find his way out of the abyss? Does he outsmart his jailer and mount some kind of prison revolt, right, with his fellow inmates and, and somehow they break out? No. No, not not at all here, right? He is set free. Why? Because in God's eternal decree, in God's eternal plan, God has a predetermined purpose for Satan to serve. And Satan's ultimate defeat is at the time and place of God's choosing. In his infinite wisdom, he has predestined where he will meet Satan in final judgment. 
It's not up to the devil. God has already predetermined that. We don't ever want to forget as we read Revelation, as we study these things, that we don't come away with some some dualistic uh, idea of God and Satan. They are not equal opposites. They're not fire and ice, right? Two equally matched opposing forces. No such thing whatsoever. Satan does not operate independently. He does not operate autonomously. He is a created being, is he not? He's not creator. He is a created being. Right? So this is important for us. His end, his destiny was prophesied, not in Revelation, but all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. It's already come to pass, and he must necessarily serve the eternal purposes of God. So, this freedom that Satan has is for a little while. It will be temporary. It will be brief, and it will come at the end of the church's missionary enterprise. When the Lord says, it is done, mission accomplished, it will be the end of the millennium, and Satan will be loose for a little while to do what he cannot presently do to deceive the nations. So what does Satan do while he's on furlough from prison? He goes back to his old tricks to try to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He's released to deceive the nations whom we're said is at the four corners of the earth. The four corners means what? The whole thing, right? The whole world, right? The whole earth is in view here. That's his scope of deception. It is global. Okay? And he talks here about Gog and Magog. We have referenced that before. This comes all the way from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel's prophecy of the last day's end times battle. Where the armies of God are arrayed to destroy Israel. Destroy the people of God. And then the Lord saves them, rescues them, vindicates his saints. And then we have the visions of the new temple at the end of Ezekiel. After Ezekiel chapter, after Ezekiel chapter 40. Right? So Gog and Magog here though are not references to a geographical location. I know some of you come from that dispensational uh, perspective of the end times, and you've heard end times teachers say, Gog and Magog, this is that region of the north, this is Russia, this is about Moscow, this is about the old Soviet Union, but it can't be. Because this is not about one particular nation. This is all of the nations that are amassed together from the four corners of the earth, not just one nation. So what is Gog and Magog? Well, much like Babylon, which we've talked about before, when Babylon is referenced in Revelation, it's not talking about ancient Babylon. It's not talking about one city. It is symbolic of all cities that are in opposition to God and his gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. And in Jewish literature, in Jewish, ancient Jewish writing, Gog and Magog became like shorthand to refer to all of the people who are in opposition to God and his people. And that's what's in view here. Symbolically, we're told that the nations of the whole of the earth under the influence of Satan are coming together, right? They're, they're being mustered, satanically inspired and energized for an all-out assault against the church. Now, we've already covered this end time scene, and I'm not going to labor very much in this. We've talked about it a few times because this is not the first time we see this in Revelation, is it? We saw it in chapter 16. We saw it in chapter 19 just a few weeks ago. It is the same end time final battle. But now we have a different perspective. The defeat of Satan is in view here. At that time of the final battle, this time where Satan is released to deceive the nations, the church will be vastly outnumbered. 
the odds will be completely stacked against her. The great military might of the whole world under the influence of Satan is arrayed to secure the ultimate destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. This is why this end time assault cannot be in one location. We looked at that earlier in chapter 16. This cannot be in a physical geographic place like the valley of Megiddo. Because all of the armies of the world are involved to destroy all of the church of Jesus Christ. Which is scattered where? All over the earth. This is worldwide, global persecution on a scale that we have not seen to this day. Verse 9 then symbolizes this army coming against the church to decimate her. Symbolically, marching up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The camp of the saints is Exodus imagery. Where do the people of God dwell in the wilderness? In tents, right? They were encamped about the tabernacle. The wilderness also the place that we've already looked at symbolically where God preserves spiritually his people during the time of the tribulation. And the beloved city, once again, is, is a reference not to the physical city of Jerusalem, but to the church, the people of God. And you see that in the 21st chapter of Revelation. This is apocalyptic language, apocalyptic imagery, lots of symbols. So not geographic locations, Brothers and sisters, this is not a literal battle. It is symbolic of this global persecution that is going to happen at the end time with the purpose of attempting to wipe the face, uh, off the face of the earth the church of Jesus Christ. It's not that armies gathering in a, one physical location to battle the church. Like the church is not going to be there. And is it even a battle if the battle is against the Lord of the universe? There's no battle really is no such thing, right? We'll look at that in a moment. But what's happening here? The church is going to take heavy casualties. It will appear to the world as if they had won. As if the church of Jesus Christ was eliminated. We saw that in chapter 11 with the, uh, the two witnesses, right? Which symbolized the witnessing uh, mission and enterprise of the church of Jesus Christ to take the gospel, to testify of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, we're told there that when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, listen to that same imagery, right? Of Satan being released from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is what's going to happen. This is what's in view at this time after the thousand years are ended. The church across the world will suffer, and it's going to look like she's done. Now, while things look really bad for the church, we already know the outcome, right? There's nothing to fear here. There's nothing to worry about here. Now, I don't want to see these days, and I don't think you want to pray to be in those days. It will be bad. Persecution now is localized. It's here and there in different parts of the world. We enjoy relative ease in the expression of our faith here uh, in our country. It's not the case in other parts of the world. But imagine the most horrific things you hear about happening to our brothers and sisters in the Lord around the world right now. And imagine that everywhere. There's no place to hide. There's no quarter for the church of Jesus Christ. She will be sought out. And destroyed. 
But here we see, right, the conclusion of all these things, right? God's enemies are soundly defeated and destroyed, and his people emerge triumphant and victorious. How? How does God accomplish this victory? Well, it's at his return, isn't it? We've, we've looked at this. At his return in Revelation 19, what, did, what does it say that Jesus will do? That vision John sees of the rider on the white horse says that he has a sword that comes out of his mouth, and with it he will strike down the nations. That's what he's going to do. With a word, he will conquer them. Not much effort, is it? There's not going to be any blood drawn on the side of Jesus in terms of injury to the army of light. No, we're not going to see that at all. In fact, just like in chapter 19, the briefest and fewest words possible are used to discuss this particular moment. Look what we have here in our passage. It says, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. (laughs) It's over. It's over. This is not a protracted skirmish and battle. This isn't them going at it one another. This isn't the saints coming down riding on their horses as a heavenly cavalry and swinging theirs. No such thing. Fire comes down and consumes them, right? This is symbolic language, right? Immediately we think of the Old Testament imagery of fire and sulfur coming down from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in the story of Elijah and King Ahaziah's men as fire came down and consumed them. Right? This is imagery giving us an indication that the source of, of, of the defeat that comes is judgment from heaven. God is the source of it. And he's the source of Satan's ultimate defeat. This judgment is sudden and it's unexpected. Did not Jesus say he would come how? Like a thief in the night. So we have the whole world arrayed against the church to destroy her. And that's it. In the blink of an eye. One word from the mouth of our Lord. Fire consumes them. No resistance to the overwhelming omnipotence that manifests itself on that day. That the scripture calls the great day of God the Almighty. Not a single shot is fired. Those who sought the destruction of the church are instantaneously destroyed. Every last person is consumed. Not a single shred of evidence is left of this global rebellion. But what about Satan? What about our ancient foe? What becomes of him? What happens to the one from the the, the very first moment of man's existence who who plunges the world into darkness, who's become the source of so much pain and heartache and suffering and evil in this world? What about him? He's thrown in the lake of fire. That's it. Again, no battle. There's no wrestling There's no Brazilian jiu-jitsu taking place between the lamb and Satan and he's trying to put him into submission. No, 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 no. He's seized immediately and thrown into the lake of fire. Everything, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Everything from that moment forward is a life that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. Whatever you and I think is the the joys and glories of heaven, we can't even begin to comprehend what a life will be like without the presence of Satan in this world. We just don't know. 
Eternity for us will be one in which we are completely free from Satan's lies and deceptions and schemes and threats and assaults and persecution. It's not going to be there. All of the enemies of the people of God are vanquished. They're all gone. Everyone who has sought our harm and destruction will be fully and finally and eternally defeated. So whatever you think the bliss of heaven and the glory of heaven is like, we we can't even imagine what that is going to be like. But this is not the final event, is it? Not the final events before we experience those glories of the new heaven and the new earth. Let's now look at the judgment before the throne of God. That's the last vision that John sees here at the end of chapter 20. The judgment of all of humanity. There is a final judgment of all human beings, brothers and sisters. There is a time where we will stand before the throne of God. And the whole testimony of scripture confirms this. Let me just read you three short passages. Matthew, the 25th chapter, this is our Lord speaking. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on a glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations. It's the final judgment. In the 17th chapter of Acts, we have Paul speaking to, 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 to heathens, to pagans, to unbelievers in Athens. And he tells them there, because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is an appointed day where he will judge the world. Paul To the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. We can all attest from scripture here that the final judgment will be universal and comprehensive in scope. All of humanity, all men, all women will appear before him. All nations, all peoples from all places. And yeah, Christians are going to be present there as well. Don't think for a moment that we escape that. Don't think for a moment that we won't be present on that day. We, we will. We'll talk more about that. Isn't that what Paul says there? We must appear. We. Who's we? Well, he's including himself, isn't he? He's including the the church at Corinth that he's writing to must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that's final judgment. We know that God has exercised judgment throughout all of human history, starting again at the garden scene in Genesis chapter three, judgment against the serpent. But we see that that he exercises this divine prerogative and right as creator throughout all of history. And scripture is replete with scenes of God's judgment and warnings of impending judgment. It's woven throughout all of scripture. You can't escape it. You can't ignore it. Judgment is present there. And I don't understand how Christians are so embarrassed to think that God is going to do this on that day. Christians seem to think that this kind of judgment is incompatible with the great God of love that we have. And we've talked about this before. There's nothing to be embarrassed about here. God cannot be loving if there is no judgment. They go hand in hand because of the one who is being sinned against and the magnitude of the glory which is being sinned against. 
can't ignore judgment. For God's plan of redemption to unfold, it will include salvation and judgment. Both are present. And this final scene of judgment, we've been looking at already, though, a steady stream of judgments. What about the seal judgments? What about the trumpet judgments? What about the bowl judgments? All of those, with the exception of the, of the ones that pertain to the final judgment and that, that time at the return of Christ, when are those taking place? They're now. They're the pre-judgment judgments, okay? And we need to see that. They're, they're precursors of final judgments. But now we come to the final judgment. There's no more after this. You happy about that? <laughs> right, this is the last message on judgment in Revelation, right? It's the final judgment. We've already seen all of God's judgment of his enemies judged. Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, and all those thrown in the lake of fire of unending torment. And now we see the judgment of all of humanity. So we'll look at this uh, uh, answering four particular questions here. Who is the judge? Who are the judged? How are they judged? And what is the judgment? So who is the judge? He sees there, then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. First thing John sees in his vision here is a throne. A great white throne. We were first introduced to that throne all the way back in chapter 4. Do you remember that? That was a long time ago. Feels like a long time ago. John sees a throne. He sees a door open in heaven and he sees a throne. This throne that is the epicenter of the universe. Everything revolves around this glorious throne. And around that throne that, that, that shone with the glory and brilliance of, of, of just uh, the most precious of jewels. And the rainbow that encircles the throne. What surrounds the throne? Worshiping creatures. The four living creatures. The 24 elders. Later on around the throne we see the multitude of saints gathered there. Worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. But all of that is absent from this particular scene here. It's not accompanied by any of those things. There are no other angels. There are no worshiping creatures. There are no multitude of saints worshiping. Here he sees a single solitary image. A great white throne. And in Revelation, we've seen this throne a number of times. Uh, and it's usually ascribed to God as creator, as the sovereign ruler of the universe. But the image of this particular throne here, while it does re- refer to those things, has something more in view. And that is the role of God in judgment. For this is heaven's courtroom. Two descriptors are offered here about the throne. It's great. And it's white. How's it great? I think when we look at this passage here, we can say it is great in the universal scope of authority that will flow from this throne in judgment. It's great in the magnitude of judgment that will be meted out. It's great in the comprehensiveness of those who are summoned to peer before it. And it's great in the glory manifested by virtue of its occupant. It's a great throne, and it's that color white. We've seen that white many times already in Scripture. White symbolizing what we've seen as righteousness and holiness and purity and victory. 
So what does this image of this great white throne declare to us if not the unrivaled sovereignty, absolute authority, and unparalleled righteousness and holiness that is about to express itself in divine judgment? This is a terrifying scene. It's a horrifying scene. It's a fearful scene because of what it represents. Second thing John sees here in the beginning of this vision is a person. He sees the one occupying the seat of this throne. And who is this person? Is it God? Is it Jesus Christ? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, who is it, right? We've seen this several times in Revelation. We saw back there in chapter 5, we see again, he sees the one seated on the throne, but then he also sees the lamb standing before the throne. What's with that? I thought the lamb was God. He is. Well, how can this be? Who is this, right? What's going on here? Well, let's consider the things that Jesus himself said concerning his role of judgment. In John chapter 5, 22 And verse 27, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the Father has given the authority in in concerning final judgment and its execution to the Son, to Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So is it God on the throne or is it Jesus Christ on the throne? Yes, yes, right? There's no contradiction here. I mean, we we get this. And John does this a few times in Revelation. And I want you to see this uh, so you see how, how, how interesting this is in how John phrases these things. Because several times in Revelation, John refers to it as the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, he starts saying this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. But check out what he does here. In verse 3 of chapter 22, he says, No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Do you see that? He doesn't use a plural pronoun here. He uses a singular pronoun to refer to God and the Lamb. Well, we get that, don't we? God is one. God is one God. I mean, John is extolling here the beautiful reality that we understand. God is one. God is three in one. But he's in unity. He is one. He is a tri-unity, right? We understand the Trinity. And it's beautiful to see that play itself out here in Revelation. So is it God on the throne? Yes. Is it the Lamb on the throne? Yes. Who is the one seated on the throne? Yes. (laughs) God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb. Yeah, it is Jesus Christ. You can say either one and you'd be right. This is what he sees on the throne. That second part of verse 11 says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Think about this. The world as we know it, this world that seems so significant, 
so important, so substantial in this particular moment completely fades away from existence. It's gone. It is completely irrelevant to this terrifying revelation that John sees here of the judge on this great white throne. What's happening here? Because we've, we've seen this language already. We've seen these phrases concerning this particular time already a few times in Revelation. Back in chapter 6, in the sixth seal, it says that the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. In chapter 16, as the seventh bowl was poured out, there were flashes of lightning and earthquakes and great hail and, and thunder. And it says that the cities of the nation fell and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. All of these parallel symbolic visions of the end of all things is the decreation of the present heaven and earth. All of that associated with final judgment. What's happening? Let's look at another passage, Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, it says there, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works... I lost my place, sorry there. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is happening? It's decreation. It has to take place before there can be a new heavens and a new earth. The present order, the present heavens and earth have to be decreated. The present sin-stained creation is going to be judged simultaneously as all of humanity is being judged. Why? Well, Romans 8 tells us that the creation was subjected to futility and is in bondage and corruption because of sin. Creation, all of creation, it says there, is groaning under the curse of man's rebellion. Beloved, we're not going to remain in this on the other side of final judgment. How can we? This world is broken. This world is under the curse. It has to be renewed just like we will be renewed, right? All of creation will be renewed for us to inhabit the beauty and perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. Decreation at final judgment makes way for renewed creation. There's a lot of people who believe, well, all of this is just going to be gone and we're just going to be floating in heaven. No. We have resurrected bodies. Do you get that? Real physical bodies. Bodies matter. That should be on a t-shirt. Bodies matter. We're going to start a new movement. Bodies matter. Listen, you're not just a soul. God fashioned you in a body. And under the curse, this decays, right? We're subject to, to, to the curse of this world, the brokenness. Our bodies decay. And we die. But we will be resurrected with a body that will not experience any of that so that we can inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not going to be floating around strumming a harp, you know, a harp on a cloud. We're going to inhabit new heavens and a new earth here with real physical bodies like unto our Lord's. Isn't that awesome? I'm praising God for that every day. I can't wait, right? 
So this is important. But here in this scene, all that matters is this great white throne and the judge seated upon it and the verdict he is about to render. But unlike all of the other judgment scenes that we've already seen in the seal and the trumpets and the bowls where God uses a variety of agents to mete out those judgments and sometimes it's angelic beings, God reserves final judgment here for himself. God reserves the execution of this judgment for himself. It will be a righteous judgment. It will be just. This is a judge that cannot be manipulated. It's a judge who cannot be deceived. It is a judge who cannot be bribed. It is a judge who cannot be worn down by tears and sentimentality to be swayed in changing his verdict. Cannot be coerced by threats. He cannot be compelled to change his verdict through persuasive argumentation. No, no. This judgment will be perfect and righteous and true. This judge brings absolute omniscience and holiness to the judgment seat. His judgment will be incontestable, unalterable, and incontrovertible. And it will be fair, brothers and sisters. Isn't that what all humanity says they want? It's not fair. This will be fair. Everybody will get what they deserve. Everyone. Who are the judged? Verse 12 there, he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Who are the judged? Well, John Judge John defines them as the dead. <laughs> the dead are the one who are standing now before the throne of God. You recall in this parenthesis there uh, of, of verse 5 there at the beginning of this particular chapter. In that second millennial scene of the saints who reign in heaven and how they came to life. There is this parenthesis there now to contrast those who did not come to life. And it says, and it says there in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Similar now to chapter 19 in this scene of the great supper of God, where the angel says and summons all of the birds to this particular feast, right? To feast on the flesh of kings and captains, mighty men, the flesh of all men, both free and slave. And it says also both small and great. Notice the similar language and phrase used there of who are the judge before the throne of God. Are these dead unbelievers or are these dead Christians in view here? <laughs> You're afraid to answer now. The answer to that is also yes. <laughs> but the context here is significant. I did say even Christians are before the throne. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in view of this passage here, because John is not trying to say everything that could be said about final judgment here. In view here are those who are in rebellion to God. These are unbelievers. All of those who have died apart from Christ. At the second coming of Christ, every single person who has died in the entirety of human history, from Adam until that final battle scene, will be resurrected bodily and stand before the throne of God. There is and always has been only one bodily resurrection that will take place at the end of the age for those who have died. Death and Hades will give up the dead who are in it. 
That tells us a lot right there. Death in Hades. Who's in death in Hades? We already know where the souls of the saints are, don't we? They're reigning with Christ in heaven right now. So death in Hades must mean the dead in there is referencing unbelievers. Those who have died prior to this scene are in the place of the dead. What happens to the souls of those who die without Christ? Those who've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who've lived in in complete rebellion to God. Where are they? They're in this place called death and Hades or the grave. It's the place of the dead. What is this particular place? Well, it's a preliminary realm of judgment. A preliminary realm of uh, of the condemnation that they are going to experience for all eternity. Well, are they sleeping there? Again, are they in some stasis? No. They're in a place of torment already. Do you recall the parable Jesus taught of the rich man and Lazarus? Was the rich man having a good time? Was he relaxing on a lazy boy while he waited judgment? He was already in it. He was pleading for a drop. He was in anguish and torment. That is exactly where all those who've died in Christ, apart from Christ rather, are right now. That's not hell. That's the lake of fire. This is a preliminary realm of judgment already. That's where they are. And John says here in this vision, what does he see? He says that this place of the dead will surrender all their dead on this day. God will raise everyone up bodily. Even those who've been cremated? Yeah, somehow he's going to reatomize and molecularize and do something. They will be raised up and everyone's body will be transformed for eternity. Are we going to look different than we are? I don't know. I hope so. Like, I'm going to look like this, but I want to I look good, you know? And you probably do too. What will that body look like? I don't know, but it is going to be of the same kind as our Lord's physical body at His resurrection. Now, their resurrected bodies, well, their resurrected bodies are going to be fit for the eternal punishment that they are going to endure. But here, all of the enemies of God are raised to eternal condemnation. Every single human being that has refused the gospel in this scene is now before the throne of God awaiting final sentence. It tells you, once again, the scope of the jurisdiction of the throne of God. It is everyone. It is all of the inhabitants of the earth. No one escapes this courtroom. No one's going to get out of it. No one on that day, you can bribe the Lord and say, look at all the money I've got. Look at all the good things I did. No one will escape this scene. And again, one of the challenges here is, because you probably have a number of questions that John is just not burdened to address here. This is a summary of final judgment. This is not all that can be said about final judgment. I mean, we have so many other passages in Scripture concerning final judgment that are just not even addressed here. Like I even said, it, we're going to receive glorified bodies like unto our Lord. You read 1 Corinthians 15, but, but John isn't addressing any of that here. Well, well, is there going to be a rapture? That's not even addressed here at all. 
You already know when the rapture is. When's the rapture? At the return of the Lord. Dead in Christ will be raised first, and we who are alive will be caught up to meet our Lord in the air. Okay? That's the rapture. Okay? But John's not talking about any of this here. We know that Christians, again, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but that's not clear here from this final account because the dead referenced here are the unbelieving dead who were not raised to life, as we saw just a few verses up in chapter 20. This vision of final judgment reveals the ultimate destiny of all of the enemies of God and the enemies of the saints of God. That's what's in view here. This is the burden John has to present in the vision of what he is seeing here. Not of all that's going to happen. In fact, we know from Scripture that, that on that day, right, for Christians, right, our works are going to be tried by fire, it says. And we're going to see if they, if they hold up, right, in that trial by fire. And according to that, there will be rewards potentially in view. What are those things? I don't know. I don't know what they all look like. But John is not addressing any of those things here at all. What's in view is that those who have died apart from Jesus Christ, who've rebelled against God, are now standing before the throne of God, and they're about to be judged. So let's talk about how they're judged. Verse 12, it says, And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, in a courtroom scene, what do we have? We have the prosecution that mounts their case. They present all of their evidence, all of the information, you know, as to why these charges have been brought up and why a verdict of guilty needs to be rendered. And witnesses are summoned, right, to to bolster the case. And what we have in this final judgment scene is something akin to that. Evidence is being presented. A witness is bringing forth his testimony, We have here books opened, evidence presented. And it says here that judgment's going to be rendered according to what they had done. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? There's books in view here, in plural, and there's a book referenced here as well in the singular, the book of life. What are these books, first off? Well, these are not literal books, are they? No. This means something. This is representing something. It's not the Lord flipping open a book in heaven, okay? Books in Scripture, when it references the books of God or the books in heaven or books being opened, all of these are symbols and metaphors that communicate the inerrant, unfailing, perfect recollection and memory of God. This is God's recall of unbelievers' thoughts and words and and actions and everything that's in their heart. All of that is perfectly known to God. Every single detail. Now, we don't have that kind of recall, do we? There's two of us. We could have experienced the same particular event. And we're asked to recount what happened and what we saw. and, And we'll have different details. We see in part, we know in part, right? Even our best intent at remembering, and I'm not very good at remembering a whole lot. Like, I struggle to remember things 
from when I was little. Some people can go, man, when I was little, I did this and this and this. And I'm like, I know I was little. That's about all I know, right, <laughs> at some point in my life. I blame it on my sleep apnea, losing my memory. But God's not like us. God perfectly knows. He is omniscient, isn't he? He is all-knowing. There's no detail that escapes him whatsoever. He can recall it with 100% precision. His memory is impeccable. So what does this tell us about this judgment? This judgment, right, these books that communicate the, the mind of God, his perfect knowledge concerning deeds and thoughts and words, all of things, this judgment will be based on irrefutable evidence. It just is. The records are going to be consulted, which is the mind of God, and every detail presented will be accurate. The judgment will not be arbitrary. It will not be capricious. It is not determined on someone thinking, well, I hope I catch God in a good mood that day. Or I hope he's not in a bad mood. No, none of that is even possible concerning God. There will be no partiality in judgment. There will be no bias. The same standard will be applied to every single man and woman. The evidence will be according to what each has done. No one can stand there and appeal to their own recollection of these events as they consider them to have happened. God will give an accurate account. Who is the witness against them? It's God. God is the witness called against every man and woman, and his judgment will be just. Jeremiah 17.10, you know this verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. All of us will be judged on that standard. Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. According to his works. Peter says that God judges impartially according to each one's deed in 1 Peter 1. What's in view here? It is the practice of one's life, not the profession of faith that will be the basis of judgment. Hang on here. Don't, don't check out. Don't say, oh, that sounds like heresy. It's not. I said that Christians will be present, right? To be judged before the throne. And we will. And the question on that day is not going to be, did you receive Jesus into your heart? Did you pray the sinner's prayer? That is not the question that is going to be asked on that day. It's not the profession of faith. You recall what Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do all of these wonderful things? Did I not heal the sick, feed the poor, right? Give, give water to those who were thirsty, feed the hungry, right? All those nice things. I, I mean, he's calling them Lord. He's making a profession, isn't he? And what does he say? Depart from me. I don't even know who you are. You're not of me. What's going on there? Well, Dan, are you saying that we're saved by works? Yes. All the answers are yes today. But aren't we saved by grace through faith apart from works? 
yes. What are you trying to say here? The evaluation of one's life and work will be the definitive test of the genuineness of one's faith. It's not that salvation is by works, but that salvation produces works. We know that from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Our works, what do they do? They demonstrate whether our faith in Christ is real. Whether it is genuine. If our faith is genuine, then the works will be there to prove that it is genuine. If the works are not there, that proves that the faith is not genuine. What does James say in in the second chapter of James? What good is it if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can't that faith, can that faith save him, he says there? Faith by itself without works is dead. Faith apart from works, he says, is useless. Because why? Even the demons believe. Even the demons can make a profession that Jesus is Lord because they know it. And they shudder and they tremble. We are justified by our works in that they are the definitive proof of our allegiance and obedience to Christ. They are the definitive proof of whether our faith is actually in Christ is genuine. There is a tight connection between faith and works in the scripture. And I dare not want to even resolve that tension. Because that day will reveal whether our faith in Christ was genuine or it was false. So that's why I'm saying it's not your profession that on the, and that day is going to be the, the standard by which you'll be judged. It will be our works. We will also be judged by our works. God will check the books. But there's another book in view here too, isn't there? One book. Singular book. The book of life. But this is not a record of deeds, but of names. It's the roster of God's elect. It is the roster, the ledger of all those that were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. These are the redeemed of God and of the Lamb. They are the ones from whom the Lamb offered himself up in sacrifice for their salvation. So we are saved by works. By his works. By his works. And on the basis of what Christ has done for us, our names are inscribed the book of life. Not when you first trusted, but from before the foundation of the world. For genuine believers, the other books contain the verification of our names having been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. That's what those books contain. And aren't you glad that our eternal destiny does not depend, right, on our imperfect works on our half-baked attempts to try to tip the balance and the scales to do more good works than bad works. This is not how we're going to be judged. That will be in view, for sure. We're going to stand before God and all those things will be exposed and brought to the light. But then this book will be consulted to see whose names are found there. Those names are there solely by the grace given to us in Christ Jesus. For the rest of the dead, referenced here, their works will condemn them. They'll be judged exactly as they want to be judged on the merits of their works. And all of their works will damn them. 
What is the final judgment here? What does the judgment consist of? Well, it tells us that death in Hades, this temporary abode of the dead, is swallowed up by the lake of fire. Those whose names were not written in the book of life will be thrown in there. Or Satan's already been cast, and the beast, and the false prophet, and Babylon. The roster has been checked. Names have not been found confirming the destiny that their life's works had earned. This lake of fire is a symbol. I've said this before. What it represents, though, is far more horrifying than you and I could even begin to imagine. It will be the eternal home of all those who rejected Christ. Oh, you've talked to people and they've said, well, I want to be in hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. It's going to be one eternal party nonstop. There'll be no party. There are no friends. Unending torment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, some believe that this lake of fire is going to be a place where a person will be consumed. They'll be annihilated. They'll cease to exist. They'll, they'll dissolve. They'll, they'll burn up like the ether. They'll, they'll be snuffed out as if they never were. But that is not the case here. They're raised bodily. They're given in a, body, a body fit for eternity. For this, 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 to experience this conscious unending torment. In which their bodies will burn but never be consumed. That is Horrifying. A place where they will never again experience the grace of God. What what could that be like? That is horrific. Absolutely horrific. We don't want to be there. You don't want those that you love and know to be there. What a motivator for us to proclaim the good news to other people. Now, there's no more scenes of judgment after this. This is it. That's the end. But it's there and it's present for us in God's word because God expects us to respond to it, doesn't it? God expects something from his people. Why is that there? Yes, it's a source of comfort because we know that all of God's enemies and all of the enemies of the church will be vanquished. Praise God for that. But also, it's a summons to respond To the gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. What burdens me as a pastor are are the people sitting in chairs in churches today. Who make a profession with their lips. But on that day their works will condemn them. Not justify them. It's not the profession that God is after. It is the practice of your life that, that reflects and demonstrates the real regenerating work of the Spirit of God, transforming their heart and conforming them more and more to Jesus Christ. Because they've been fashioned for good works to do. Do you trust Jesus Christ? Or are you, are you counting on that day that you're going to stand before God and say, I was a good person, Lord. I certainly was better than so-and-so and so-and-so. Look what I did. I gave to your church. I helped people. I gave to charities. I prayed. None of those things will save you on that day. 
The only thing that will save you is that you've flung yourself at the mercies of Christ, that you're clinging to him and as your hope of salvation on that day, that it is his blood that has washed away your sins and that you've been made righteous because of Christ, not by your own self-righteousness. So I implore you, listen to John 3, 16 and 18. We, we know that first part. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hallelujah. But God, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Cling to Jesus Christ unwaveringly for your salvation. Do not trust in yourself nor your works. That will make it on that day. For those of us who are in Christ, He expects of us praise, worship, and adoration. He's a righteous judge. You know why we don't have to take vengeance? You know, you know why we don't have to seek out to avenge ourselves? Because there's going to be perfect justice on that day. All will be made right. All will be dealt with. You know there's great injustice in this world. You've experienced it. We see it all around us. And the human heart longs for things to be made right. And on that day they will. And we can have confidence because of who the judge is. And who is the one seated on that throne of judgment? He is just. And we also are to praise and worship him because he's graciously pardoned us in Christ. What is the greatest thing, the greatest words we can hear? Romans chapter 8 opens with this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You will not taste of the second death. You will not experience that conscious eternal torment in the lake of fire so that on that day when we stand before his throne of judgment what are we going to do but fall on our faces before him in endless praise and adoration praise god for that praise him for that there's a final judgment brothers and sisters you'll be there i'll be there Everyone will be there. May we be found in Christ on that day.